1: Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. In a typical episode, I have a comedian, writer, director, etc. on to play and talk about one of their jokes. But this is not a typical episode. It's not even just one episode. This episode is two episodes. So what is this thing, though? Yes, uh, of course. So uh, while we work on a new set of interviews, I wanted to give you something to hold you over and I wanted to try something new. Though I ask a few questions, this two-part episode is a conversation I had with my colleague Catherine Van Arendonk, one of our TV critics at Vulture. Earlier this year, I had asked Catherine to review stand-up specials for the site because I wanted there to be more serious writing about stand-up on the site, and I thought she'd be great at it. When looking at a show, she had such a special and rare ability to think on the page about how the creators decide to go about achieving their goals that I thought would lend itself to reviewing comedy. And she has been absolutely tremendous at it. What goes along with reviewing things this day and age is year endless, so I thought it'd be fun and hopefully interesting to do an episode in which we walk through a top 10 ranking that was published on Vulture. And it's two parts because, well, we are talkers. In this, part one, we'll hear us talk about number 10 through 6 on the list. On Wednesday, in part two, you'll hear us discuss five through one. Seriously? Honestly? I think this episode, which is actually two episodes, well, rules. So here is part one of our conversation. So I am here with Catherine Van Arendonk. Thank you so much for doing this.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So we will go through your list, but uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about what went into doing this list and making this list. Um, So to back up, uh, earlier this year, I took you out to a very nice lunch. Mm -hmm.
3: It was really nice. It
1: really was. Yeah. And I was like, do you want to review comedy specials? Mm Mm-hmm. And you uh, eventually said yes, but at that time you're like you're not sure. But
3: no, I was like I was like eh, probably not. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so eventually you said yes. And what did you expect from going into a meeting you had not necessarily reviewed and or like really specialized in? Mm-hmm. And then what did you find when you started doing it?
3: I have always watched comedy and thought, oh, that's interesting, That's nice. And then it sort of never pierces the critical layer of mm-hmm. it has always been one of those just super visceral like I like that or I did not like that. And I think in part because the kinds of stuff that I have always critically been interested in is much more explicitly about like here is a story and we're going to watch several people tell it and it's going to unfold for a long time. And it's usually um, this elaborate um constructed like sets and scripts and, you know, costumes and it that because I I come from being a TV critic, for me, it was immediately obvious that a lot of the things that you can hang criticism that you are not particularly attached to Mm -hmm. on a lot of superficial stuff that is just not there in comedy. Yeah. As a TV critic, if you watch a show and you're like, eh, that's fine. You can be like, you can waste full paragraphs on like, did you know, though, that the costumes actually are quite good? Yeah, yeah. In, in comedy, you cannot. Yeah. It's just, it's, ba- there's nothing there.
1: Yeah. And you could... But it seems like – you can be like, well, the set is bad, but it seems so small. Yes. Especially in a review.
3: And the other thing about TV is that there are just so many people responsible for anything that anytime you're even criticizing something, you can't even really pin it on any one person. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can – Sometimes there are performances where you're like, well, that actor is that's it's just not working or a script is terrible. But even in that kind of situation, when something is transcendent, who knows how that actually yeah. who is responsible, who is most responsible for making that happen? And so you do a lot of like the show does this and the show does that. Mm-hmm. And who knows what person actually was, was responsible? So with comedy, I think the I think. Two things. The first thing was that in the actual process of writing, there's just all kinds of um, like crutches that you you don't have. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, which is then um, simultaneously delightful because you have extreme transparency about who is responsible for everything that's happening in front of you. But then the other thing is that actually there are a lot of things that I have learned about writing about TV and about storytelling that I think apply very, very well to the way comedy specials work and don't work mm-hmm. and the way things, things like surprise happen or does not happen, things like um, narrative that feels like it's really being developed, characters that you sort of grow to understand. These are all things that are absolutely alive in all of these comedy specials that I think are just remarkable work. Um, works of writing that uh, and performance, but um, but it's almost like because comedy is so visible as that one person, and you see your mm-hmm. it, everything is transparent that way. The opacity of how written and how structural everything is becomes almost more interesting yeah. and harder to get to.
1: Yeah, because in many ways, a lot of comedians are trying to hide that they did something on purpose
3: yes the character and the self map very closely onto each other which is not to say that they are the same and like that's one of the great things about these is that they are not the same and you can watch it happening in front of you but so much of the presentation of it is the persona is a is a marketing of self Mm -hmm. that um i think it's very easy to catch to slip to try to catch yourself
1: um when you had you were tasked to do you, – you reviewed specials over the the course of the year. Uh, that is
3: a lie. I reviewed cru- specials over the course of
1: six months. But I will say most specials come out towards the end of the year.
3: There are several that uh, – and, th- and some that are on this list that came out earlier yeah. and I have not – I did not write reviews but you, of. Yeah,
1: sorry. So you've written reviews for the course of the last six months. Uh-huh. And then you were tasked to do a list. Yeah. How did you approach it mm-hmm. when you knew – this is the list. Um, another thing to note is unlike TV lists, which you were one of three for our own site to do it and yeah. one of a thousand yeah. to do it across the Internet, there's probably going to be like three or four stand-up special lists.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is something I try to ignore as much as possible. Oh, cool. Which is not fair in the same way that that comedy is Personal, the criticism is also personal, mm-hmm. except that as soon as that becomes the thing that you're thinking about, you're not writing criticism of the special anymore. You are engaging in a relationship with the person, which is lovely, and we all need relationships in our life, but it is not the act of criticism. Yeah. Um, criticism, I firmly believe, is for audiences and not for creators. Mm-hmm. But the other part of that is when I say criticism is for audiences, what I really mean is that criticism is for me. Yeah. Um <laughs> because I I can't because trying to pretend that you are objective about any of these things is a total fool's errand. Yeah, yeah. Trying to pretend that you can like See it through some other person and any TV review I've ever written where it's like, this is not for me, but I bet it's for someone is a total cop out.
1: Yeah. And it's very condescending.
3: Extremely (laughs) condescending. Um, And so and so that's so really what you're looking at is a list of what I liked.
1: Yeah. When I did the list, I try to work. I I try to work against it. More so because I, I'm not good at silencing the part of me that that is like the pressure of this is going to be the only one. But I I also had seen enough comedy that I knew what I was laughing at was not reflective of what the audience this comedy is sort of being made for, mm. which is people who see like a normal amount of comedy a year. Uh-huh. So I, if anything, overcorrected to if I found a thing funny and be like, well, that's that means it's probably like probably two steps f- removed. It's or it's probably going to be self-referential in weird ways, or it's like going to be postmodern because like that's sort of where yeah. I'm at.
3: Also, the amount of self-loathing in "If I liked it, it must not be yeah. on the list" is a really
1: well. I mean, I just I I try to be like I'm not looking at it if it's funny. At, I will try to not look at something if it's funny at all. Yeah, I'd be like I assume it's funny. A professional person has done it.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: What is it – what is – I'd have to have some sort of framing device in which I do a list to justify me doing a list. And then what it – and it's really about like what it says about stand-up at the time in which the list exists, which is not – you know, I wouldn't let them use the word best in a headline. You know, like I was – and no one liked this about (laughs) word with me. But I was like, this is not the best. This is a reflection of this year and what is this – the stand-up that has come out this year, say about this year, and yes, reflecting your time means you're good. Yeah. It means you're great. Yeah. But like, what is best? I remember I wrote, it's like, comedy is subjective. Uh, I know all art is subjective. Well, comedy is really subjective. Yeah. But I think that is probably why I was never (laughs) meant to be a critic. Because I think (laughs) critics are like, my taste must mean something. And I think it's informative of an audience to have a track record of one's taste.
3: Yes. I think... One of the things that I was really, really conscious of coming into writing comedy reviews at all was that we have not had one person really owning it for mm-hmm. a little bit. And that I might suck at it, but that somebody could come to Vulture and reliably know that it was once again me still sucking in the same yeah, yeah. ways is a kind of measurement, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if what you read over and over again in a review, like if I that means if I like something, it sucks, and then yeah. that means if I don't like something, maybe it does. Exactly, it's yeah. great. But that's still a, a it's a critical voice that it, you know. And it's not to say that I I hope that I won't grow and change sure. because that's also a strange thing. But but I'm always going to be me. Yeah. And so the list then needs to also reflect some combination of. What I truly think is good and interesting and surprising and doing something that I think is remarkable, but also what I like to see in the world.
1: When I asked you to do it, it's like I had no idea what you found funny. Yeah. I was just sort of like, the way you write about the things that you like is the way that I want comedy to be written about, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like, this is a thing that someone crafted... On it, and we're not reviewing the content of the words and what is the subject matter, but the sort of way in which it is happening. And Although you
3: can review the content of the words, because sometimes the way in yes, which it is happening sure. is it is happening in a way that is
1: yes, of course, boring. And, and it is a it is a art form of communicating yeah, different yeah. things, and like yeah. having novel takes is part of it. But I do think what gets lost often in comedy is the review of subject matter. Yeah, in both. Applauding and deriding specials, and I, I had worked against it, and I think that reason alone resulted in what you find good mm. in your new exposure to what <laughs> comedy is is a list that is remarkably similar to the list that I would have done. <laughs> um,
3: I hope that this would not be this. That this is not going to be the case next year. By the way, yeah. I hope that a year from now, when I make this list again, I. I have developed a completely different sense of what
1: goodness is. But I think you are. And I think you have a way – you've created a way of, like, relating to the person's – what the person trying to do thematically in a way that um, separates that. Mm. And I think – I also hope that you do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I want more comedy voices in general about what is good because I think with everything, comedy sort of has lacked a historical – A history of criticism that other mediums have had and the more people's ability to understand what good is in different ways the better we sort of are as an audience body as sort of like demanding what we want from our performers right Um, do you have anything else to say about this specific idea of how you approach the list
3: i think that the fact that there are only going to be a couple lists is bad one of the really amazing things about tv criticism right now is that there are so many ways of defining what makes a great show yeah. and that's partly because unlike in comedy there's also 70 bazillion shows out there yeah. and so there's many different ways of being good yeah. as well as defining what that is but um but i think it i think it is a it's an additive thing when yeah. you have more people who are talking about and defining what a great thing can be, more great things get made, yeah. and then it continues.
1: So the first idea was that we're. I was also going to make a list and we would compare and contrast, but ultimately the lists were so similar that it felt incredibly boring to be like, well, what do you put at three? I put at four. <laughs> so we're just going to go through your list, especially because we have the same number one. So it's like we're all building the same thing. But yeah. I will mention two specials that I don't know if I were to make the list it would be on it, but I feel like I should honorably mention them. One is Nate Bargetti's special, which to get to my point is the thing that made me laugh the most I watched it on my phone while walking and I remember like legitimately almost one getting hit by a car (laughs) and two like crying in public I couldn't believe how funny it was and I interviewed him about trying to getting a sense of like why are you so funny to me and you know it's a little bit of people's brains don't work like his brain and you get to hear it yeah you didn't review that one, but you did watch it.
3: I did. I love that one. It was also on my honorable mentions list, and yeah, for me, it, it's the it's the dead horse joke which you talk about yeah. in the podcast. Um, but it is also the Starbucks joke at the end.
1: For those who don't know, he finishes a story that he already told yeah. and a different thing which is a very interesting thing you do not see people do Yeah, it's like nice to have like a little coda Yeah, it's a little bit more like what happens a lot at live shows where comedians have encores when you, they get big enough they start playing theaters they'll do old jokes and he
5: sort of has that and I think it's a really interesting thing he does my wife puts uh, ice in our daughter's milk and I was like oh you do that because of my joke and she's, she's not a big fan of my comedy so she was like I haven't seen it. I was like, we have Netflix, you know? And she's like, I don't think we do. I was like, I I know we do. And she was like, I'm just so busy right now. Uh, So all of it's true, except my wife. My wife does like my comedy. She's very nice to me, but uh, all, all the rest is true. And the truth of it too, is it's happened to me two times, twice. And let me tell you, one time is a lot of times. The second time you start looking at yourself, you start thinking, you're like, what am I doing? I don't know if I know how to order. (laughs) I would say, I looked, I would order it in a mirror just to see what it looked, I was like iced coffee with milk. I was just trying to see what they would see. (laughs) I thought it was happening, there was a third time I thought it was happening. I was at a Starbucks at an airport. And she put the drink down, and I was like, they're doing this on purpose. I was convinced that they're just calling each other, like, let's drive this guy crazy. But she just put too much uh, milk into it. It was an honest mistake. And she told me, because she set the drink down, and we're both just staring at it. And she just goes, that feels like a lot of milk, doesn't it? I was like, not as much as usual, but it does feel...
3: I loved that whole ending section because it's such a it's such a weird and uh, immediately defamiliar familiarizing way to put yourself into a joke where you're yeah. like here's this thing that's actually already been happening I'm just gonna catch you up really fast like that is inherently funny as yeah. a way of just telling any kind of story um, but then also because I because I like long stories it immediately appeals to me because there's this sense that like a thing happened in the past and things yeah. are gonna happen and it feels like. A longer relationship with the person in front of you yeah i
1: mean it's it also is like in its way captures nate's life as a southern person who's living a like it's not a joke he's not like it's weird having a southern accent he doesn't say that he's his comedy is not i'm a southerner it's just that he is and he lives that life and he lives in new york and la or he did now he lives in nashville again but like he's interacting with these people yeah and that is the the tension. Like, it's not, it's not, it's not it's, un, it's unspoken. It's like all these things that we think about when we associate with Southern people goes into his work and he's aware of all of it. Yeah. But what it does, and which is a, a gift in storytelling and a gift to him as a comedian who sort of like has a specific rhythm is, you don't, he doesn't have to say it for we all to know what he's talking about and how he plays in and out against whatever the expectations are of yeah. the people for an audience that he knows is both Southern and not Southern. Yeah. So he, he wants to make sure the audience that is Southern goes like, that is, I know those people, I'm one of those people. And he wants non-Southerners to be like, this is sort of like the real, this is sort of what it's like. Yes, we still can be funny and like we say things wrong, but also like... I'm speaking normal to like this is like a completely normal way of I see the world, yeah. and I'm speaking, and yeah. literally I cannot communicate.
3: It's very hard to have bifurcated vision that doesn't judge on either side, yeah, and that's what it feels
6: like
1: yeah the The other special that i I probably would have included was Whitney Cummings special mm-hmm. for two reasons. One, I think it captures the need for specialness that special should have. In the modern era, which is you should be able to be like, that's the that special Mm -hmm. of a person, right? Mm So for those who don't know, the first half of Whitney's special is sort of a update of like where Me Too is at the exact moment she's recording it, Mm -hmm. which I think is a very – was very smartly executed in so much as that she's like – she cut out all the jokes about sort of first wave Me Too conversations and just went to this current phase of – where, what do we do now? And sort of the conversations are happening. And then the second half is she has this sex robot that was built, and it's like a 30-minute piece just about that. Yeah. And when Netflix started doing a lot of specials, his Chris Rock quote keeps on coming up, which is like, specials aren't special anymore. He said this years ago before that actually probably was a problem. But now it actually is much more a problem because people are putting out specials really quickly. Yeah. And they're not – thinking about, like, what does this special represent? And I felt like I, I would be lying if I was like, Whitney Cummings is, like, a person that makes me laugh the most. I'm aware that she is a great joke writer. It's just sort of like, for whatever reason, it's, like, not exactly to my my taste or how, what makes me laugh. But it is a ex- exceptionally executed Whitney Cummings special. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has maybe the line that I will think about most. <laughs>
0: We get in fights because she she generalizes a lot about, like, all men and all women. I know it's weird that I'm criticizing that because generalizing about men and women did pay for my house. But I'm evolving, and I now find that really frustrating to engage with. I had a guy come at me. And and it's
1: like she was the men and women are different comedian. Yeah. And to see how that person reckons with this era is an incredible thing to watch. And... As a lot of people are trying to reckon with the era, and I think a lot of men especially are, I think some women are not because I think they don't feel like it's they, – they don't want to do it directly or I think they they don't want to do just sort of what an audience might expect from them. Mm-hmm. But there is a thing about comedians who are like, I'm going to go head on to an issue and speak with authority. That is a bit of a dying art. Yeah, um, We'll talk about other specials where people are doing it. As on your list, it's not a lot of those because yeah, it's not yeah. a thing. There's not a lot of Chris Rocks who are like, I, I'm allowed to talk about the subject because I'm a comedian. Yeah. It's more – things. Everything's a little bit more personal even if it's about a subject matter. And I thought this was like – oh, this is a person who, who believes in their opinion and I think makes a case for it. And I have no idea where it would rank. But I do think – when I think about the comp specials of the year, it will be the special that I think about of the top five most. hmm what did you feel about it?
3: I was less taken with the first half. Yeah, because I do have a fondness for like long pieces that really yeah. work. The second half really uh, appealed to me, but the the first half, I felt I felt the wrestling, mm-hmm. and it didn't feel like the wrestling was in a place that
1: spoke to me
3: i don't i i think it, yeah. it it felt incomplete i think
1: yeah i mean i also think it's possible that it, it it's a bit stylistically like whitney likes short yes yeah. yeah she does not like space we're gonna talk about you yeah, clearly yeah. Like, I space, like space <laughs> so we're gonna get I into like it space. but she you know and you should hear earlier stuff it's crazy the jokes are incredibly short and there's no space she's like you know yeah. and she yeah. like wants to kill in a way and unlike other people who want to kill just by personality, which she probably could with her audience, yeah. she's like going to write the hell out of everything, which means there's no room for while you, she can say, I feel this uncertainty, yeah. you do not feel uncertainty.
3: Yes, I think there is a demeanor thing or not yeah. a demeanor, but a, a stage presence thing that is, again, just a, ta- taste. a yeah. taste, just a taste. Um.
1: All right. So let's get into your list. And. Number ten is another example of a person who is a I I'm going to talk about a thing because yeah. you've been waiting for me to weigh in, yeah. which is uh, coming coming in at number ten. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wanda Sykes is uh, not normal. Yes. Why?
3: As with – as I'm going to say a couple times in this, um, there is a bunch – like the title of it comes from a Trump thing. Mm -hmm. She opens with a lot of Trump material. The Trump material I do not find to be the most compelling part Mm -hmm. of
1: this. Yes, I would agree.
3: My favorite joke happens – there's a couple of ones that I like. But my favorite one happens later in the special when she starts to get into the conversations about her family and about um, particularly being a black parent who has white children.
1: Yes, that's my favorite part as well.
3: Yes. And there is one joke where she is trying to talk about her young son, kicking a ball at her and he wants to play. And then she says that he she feels like he's playing with her in the way that when you mean when like somebody's messing with you. And the way that she just juggles the meaning of the word play into like several different contexts that becomes her own realization. And it's these varying cultural Levels of how one interacts with this this yeah. this setup, um, I just found it, it extremely masterful and also really effective, yeah. like spare and um, precise. And because she can just balance, I mean, I think she's so good at. Um, just letting that word sit for a second, just long enough to click in your head so that you know what's, what's happening, um, and that she is often the butt of that joke, but that also in your head you're aware that she's not.
6: And, and, and he did it twice, twice. And, uh, and uh, it, it, you know, it was that little knot part, the knot part on the balloon, you know, that little knot in the balloon. Again, yeah, that knot part hit me right You were playing, huh? You were playing. I'm, I'm sorry, baby. I, I didn't know you were playing. Okay, stop crying, stop crying. It's okay, all right. You gotta let me know we, we playing or something. I, I, I didn't know, right? So my wife just looked at me like I was an asshole. Yeah. So he goes off to school and she's like, what is your problem? Why did you, I said, look, first of all, you need to take it down a notch, all right? You ain't gonna be in my face like this, okay? And second of all, I behave the way I was supposed to behave, okay? All right? I'm a black woman, all right? I come downstairs in my living room, and this little white boy kicks me in the face. Just saying.
1: I thought it was just sort of like, to be able to tell such a small personal story that's like, honestly... a barely a story Yeah, in so much of like again it's like
3: one word yeah
1: yeah to tell it and be like well this is a very deft way of having a conversation about different cultures but also sort of like having what is almost like PTSD of growing up certain ways and not being able to rewire it but you know it's wrong and I think knowing that in the context you're in it's incorrect Um, however you can't fight it i mean there's other specials on this list that have a very similar thing yeah um where it's grown-ups who have kids and they're like oh wait i'm still the person i was before i had these kids yeah and i wish i was a better person and this this is a a it's both personal but is a political way of it which i think what makes it incredibly interesting i want to ask you about the trump part because it's i think i probably want to put on the list because i hate trump jokes so much and well, I, I go back and forth because I both hate them because I think they're all bad. I think they they can't, bad in so much as they you can't think of something new to say, mm. um, and especially now, and it ends up being reactive and ends up being dated, especially the nature of how specials comes out. And he's just sort of like transparent person, so there's nothing you can reveal about this person. That said, no one talks about him mm-hmm. in specials anymore. Because they know the thing that I just said. So in the specials that are on this list, but also in the specials, having watched many of the specials came out this year, um, like Emily Heller talks about Trump, but she was recorded well in the past. So it's yep. the only reason why it's probably in there. Yeah. It is something but like I'm going to talk about this person for a half an hour that I was like, I don't find this funny or novel. Yeah. But it is nice that you're like. Someone will be like, what were comedians talking about in 2019? It's like, yeah. well, one person was talking about how there's this yeah, crazy yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. Um, it's one of those it's one of those cases where yeah, it does absolutely feel like this like record of just what it feels like to live in the yeah. world that is hard to deny. And I think I think we'll get there, but I think Emily Heller puts that better than Sykes does. But I was mostly into the way that she presents the, some of the Trump material because it then feels like that same political awareness is like this giant blunt hammer that comes mm-hmm. down in like the most obvious ways in the beginning, except then it gets refracted through these much more effective yeah. personal stories later. And it begins to feel like one single person who is just yeah. living in the world, which makes it feel more connected than some of the other ones where it's like you have to go out and you be like, like, well, the world is falling apart, but let's tell some jokes, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and so I think that um, that's what makes it work
4: more for me. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community-building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere.
7: You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet.
0: This week
4: on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how?
1: Number nine, uh, Julio Torres, My Favorite Shapes.
3: I really like this one. Mm-hmm. I watched it. The first time I watched it, I I remember slacking Meg, who is uh, our comedy editor, and saying, what am I going to write about this? Yeah. And she said, I don't know. You'll figure it out. Um, and eventually what I came to was this realization that We have all decided that, like, stand-up looks like a certain thing, and it totally does not need to, and that there are all these other ways at getting at – that it is in a lot of ways a really traditional – traditionally structured Mm -hmm. way of telling jokes, which is like, here is this little premise, and then I do a little twist, and then we move on. Except because it is physically – like it is a world that he creates a physical world and you have all of these props and he's wearing this galactic space suit thing mm-hmm. um it it is this shock of the of the unfamiliar that he then sort of has to soothe you into the rhythm of being like oh okay i i f- i understand what this is going to become now he does a thing that i j- that i just think is endlessly hilarious, which is where you look at some incredibly mundane object and then decide that it has a personality. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's a very popular thing to do that I feel like Julio Torres helped pioneer and perfect.
3: And perfect.
1: Like, And and I think it all makes sense. Like, to me, it's, it's not forced because this is, like, Julio is a visual person. Yeah. Like, Julio's sister who designed his clothing is a designer. His both his parents are, I believe, like architects or some sort of version of that. So it's like he's always – aesthetics is sort of how he understands work. Mm-hmm. And I think that in some ways is antithetical to what we think of as stand-up as a talking thing. Yeah. But he creates very visual scenes in the way he tells jokes. You know, it's a small thing and he sort of builds worlds at them. And that sort of – that disconnect of how small a thing and how yeah. big of a story he's telling. Do you
7: remember – the Disney animated film, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It wasn't a hit, but it was there. It's just sort of what we got that year. Sometimes we get lions, sometimes we get genies, sometimes we get a tender Parisian drama for the children. But a part about that movie that really, really stayed with me was its villain, this withering, possibly closeted, deeply troubled little man named Monsignor Cloud Frollo. And during the peak of his narrative arc, Monsignor Cloud Frollo sings into the roaring flames of the fire about his lust for the gypsy girl Esmeralda. And in that moment, we see him turn lust into misogyny, and to essentially genocide. Anyway, that was a Happy Meal toy.
1: And I think what it succeeded in doing is you have this incredible set, which essentially subs in for the fact of like an intentionally lack of stage presence in some ways. not not in that he's not charismatic. You watch him and he's like, this is a fascinating person. Like, he's a star. But, like, he doesn't move. It'd be crazy if he moved because he's, like, it's clear that he's reading. Even if he's not reading, sometimes he's literally reading little stories. But yeah. even when he's not, it's, like, it's clear that you're hearing written material. Yeah. But it feels like space and it feels like—it's essentially, like, where other comedians create sets and scenes by moving around— he essentially actually just has a set and you're like, "Well, this is a world," and then it sort of moves. Yeah. And it becomes fascinating, and I think what it succeeds at doing is this articulates a vision.
3: Well, and it also is articulating the fact that every time you see any comedian, the thing that you assume is naturalness is a lie. Yeah. And so what he is he just puts right up front that all of it is a lie and that it is and that at the same time this Sci-fi galactic set is for him what naturalness is yeah. like. So you enter into the space on his terms. You are on the conveyor belt as quickly or as slowly as he wants to move it, and that's true for any special. You are always on that ride that they are bringing you on, but he is making it much more obvious and unavoidable, mm-hmm. just visually by the space that he is that he's putting you in. Um, I'm also just I was. I loved the way that he uses objects from his childhood that become ways of telling stories about himself except displaced onto tiny yeah. McDonald's
1: toys. The other thing that I think makes it work and not feel too twee is every once in a while, it is not as special about being an immigrant. mm as much as it is as special about being an outsider, generally as like I'm, I was this little boy yeah. that th- lived this way, and that's weird. Yeah. But he'll have, you know, little jokes of he'll just be like, "Is this one of the many good jobs that I'm stealing from hardworking Americans?" It's pointed, and it makes it has a substance of being like this is also, um, just sort of a reminder <laughs> of the that he's doing this with a threat that's sort of always upon him and that brings a sort of heft to the entire special and brings a level of urgency to the special yeah. that, you know, it is a celebration of, like, uniqueness and specialness and difference. And it is not, like... Again, it, you know, as it happens, a lot of these things, and the best, in my opinion, most best political work often is subtle and through personal stories like this. I think it is a very unique way of doing this.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I think I said earlier that... Uh, a list reflects things that you like with the hope that there will be more things like it out there please do not make a lot of specials that look like this
1: (laughs) yeah unless unless you're Julio if you're whatever your version of this is yeah exactly and there there are other ones I remember I remember like Reggie Watts had a really interesting set I've thought of like there's different comedians have done it Mm. it's sort of like but no one has a visual language that he has yeah so like it makes sense I mean like it's such a contrast to when the aesthetics of specials are so ugly for so long that that you're like, this is a beautiful object that if you freeze frame it, you're like, this would be a nice thing to look at. Yeah. Um, that that alone is achievement because it moves forward, like the level of set design that we can expect. Right. Coming in at number eight, Ice Thickeners by Emily Heller.
3: Yes. So when she comes out and does her opening Trump mm-hmm. 10 – She is very explicit about the fact that she has to say it because she doesn't know how to do this kind of show without saying Mm. it. And framing it that way is both obvious and a bit of a relief because it makes it clear that it is almost like a throat clearing. Mm -hmm. Her Trump joke, I think, for me, is is too close to the horse in a hospital idea because for her, Trump, she it's Trump as Airbud. Yeah. And fundamentally, does it work? Because Airbud is a happy person who is yeah. happy to live in yeah. and do his – because the, the premise of Airbud is that that dog wants to play basketball, which is just a total yeah. misread of what's going on, <laughs> which is not to say that it's not yeah. – it's extremely insightful about the experience of being on the other team yeah. having to play against yeah. Airbud. That aside, in the same way that we have been talking about political material that feels too big and too obvious mm-hmm. – One of the things that Ice Thickeners does that really, really works for me is an assertion of self and an assertion of the way you want to live in the world that is working through all of the same kind of political reckoning, but without but like having cleared your throat and then not having to say it anymore. So one of the sequences that she does in here is her and a personal trainer.
0: And he goes, okay, great. And your goal weight? And I was like, oh, uh, not applicable. And he was like, you don't want to lose weight? And I was like, no, I do not. And he got this look on his face that told me that what he was thinking was, but I can see you. (laughs) But here's the thing, you guys. I wasn't lying. I wasn't trying to be snarky or cram my feminism down his throat. I'm genuinely not interested in losing weight. That's not why I walked in there that day. Nothing against you if that's something you want. I think I used to want that when I was younger. And then what happened was I gained 40 pounds and then I started making a lot of money and having a lot of sex. (laughs) And uh, Okay. saying the weight is why that happened but I also don't want to jinx it (laughs) and what would I stand to gain by getting skinny at this point just being too hungry to enjoy the money and the sex like what I'm trying to buy some butter and lick it off a dude right like
3: it's the performance of this person's total lack of understanding that 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 in itself is an interesting just sort of setup for this joke. and like the fact that her primary fitness goal is posture is also relatable. Um, but the thing, the way that she then twists it into this very quick, I don't want to lose weight because, by the way, I've had way better sex now that I'm at this weight. That is this similar reminder of like, oh, the self can exist in a way that is unapologetic and that it is funny and that is still thinking through everything that's going on without having to say like, have you heard about what's happening in the world lately with ladies?
1: It's also a way of doing a type of joke that, um, a lot of comedians do where you address how you look right? and it's a way of essentially doing and she sort of tags it with this sort of point but it's like the way female comedians are judged and how they look and, and is different and is specific and is obviously like what you would expect from men is obvious but she realized that she is a unique person that she's completely unaware of that universe where people are judged by their bodies <laughs> and, like, what bodies should look like. Yeah. And, and uses that as a sort of – it's it's a really powerful moment because she, she sort of gives people – a being like, this is an option of being like yeah. – the, the reason that you might not feel comfortable in, in these type of clothing is not because your body looks "Quote unquote bad," but because like we associate these things, and it's and it is such a joke about the relationship to audience and how you're being viewed that I think it's hard to do because you know audiences sometimes don't like to be knowing they're an audience. You know, it changes it if you're like you're an audience. I'm here. It's a very hard thing to do, and I think it's a very graceful way she does it. And I think generally, I think her comedy is very. Um, I use the word graceful a lot, but it's like all the things are sort of integrated into her joke writing. She's a very dynamic joke writer, in so much as there's different types of jokes that she does, a lot of similes, and also but like silly things that sort of, you know, she doesn't necessarily get associated with, but she's a very silly comedian. And I was very happy to see it on this. <laughs> I wasn't sort of expecting it, just kind of like it wasn't not a bigger special, yeah. Whatever we'd think of as bigness, yeah. But I it. It makes sense, in that you're like it's it's personness is probably what you connect it. With.
3: Yeah, its personness is definitely. I mean, I I'm again, absolutely. That is something that I found I liked. I that is it is identification, pure and simple. But <laughs> I think um, in addition to that, I was surprised at how. Um, deft, it felt like a lot of the material about, um, particularly also the joke about, um, her boyfriend's dick and its size Mm -hmm. and the way that she is able to just, again, juggle so many different angles out of that single idea, um, both really inventive and funny and, and, um, yeah, and just really smart, I thought.
1: Coming in at number seven. Bill Burr's Paper Tiger. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think about it?
3: <laughs> I think that the that the beginning is a little rough.
1: Yeah, well, we, <laughs> I think let's talk about the part that's good, and I will defend parts of the beginning.
3: Okay. What happens in this special is that Burr establishes a character of himself, mm. and then thoroughly undermines that character. Yeah. And then, in the process of undermining that character, is still just is still creating a, a different version of himself that is trying to wrestle with with yeah. both sides of it. So, um, he has a joke about being sexually assaulted, that sounds. Like, in the beginning, it is going to be this joke about how women need to be able to deal with sexual assault better and how it's not actually a big deal. And then quickly begins unraveling into the fact that it has been a huge deal for him and him grappling with it. And, like, how do you make it funny and Yet it is clearly funny. I mean, he is and he happens again and again in this special where you come into what you feel like is a room that, you know, with a guy that you hate. Mm -hmm. And then he manages to convince you that he also hates that guy.
1: Yeah, I think that joke's rhythm is a very bizarre thing because it has it keeps on faking out that it's going to turn where he's going to do something. And it keeps on getting smaller. And you're like, this guy has like a lot of pain about this thing. You know, what Bill Burr was sort of, he didn't sort of invent this, but he sort of became a master of, which is sort of saying the worst, instead of building to getting the audience on your side and building to the worst part, you put the worst part in the beginning, and then you earn it back. The thing that sort of happened, which I think was why his last special, I think, was probably his worst, is that the audience is now on board with everything because they freaking love Bill Burr, and I think some of his audience is, like, not great some of it is very sophisticated, but I think some of is less ideal. And the first few minutes plays into that. So what instead he does is stretch that dynamic over the course of an hour. Mm. And I think what is, I think, masterful and what I think a lot of comedians don't do is they'll say a thing about themselves and then assume you have to take them for their word. Yeah. Right. They'll be like, you know, I'm. You know, and we'll talk about it later. It's like, but it, like, I'm depressed or I'm angry, and then they're just telling jokes about it, and you're like, you seem like a normal guy. You seem like a prof- professional talker. Where Bill is angry for 25 minutes. Yeah. And there's probably people like that part. There's parts of those jokes that, though, I disagree with. You're just sort of like, you can laugh at certain parts of it or little moments, and he he knows to not make it such a deep hole that he can't get out of it. But then, when he says he has anger problems, you're like, "Yeah, it's that guy <laughs> that
3: guy is a real pro, yeah, like yeah. it's
1: really like he just talks about like, I need to stop this cycle like the he talks about having this kid, and he needs to stop this cycle of anger that his entire family, and that is so earned because because
3: the structure of the special you know, does it yes. because the structural structure of the special. Shows you the angry guy, just yeah. as every single joke shows you the asshole, and then, and then points out how what a, what an asshole he is. The entire special is operating on yeah. that same thing. The problem is that when you front load it as sharply yes. as he does at the beginning, it's too easy to lose the thread of how sharp that is at yeah. the beginning.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you didn't tell a lot of people that, like, it's worth watching the whole thing, they might not stop. I remember it reminds me of when I talked to Danic Wright about Vice Principals. And they're like, we want to make it as hard as possible to watch at the beginning to really show people that, like, and but we didn't think about the fact that people could just stop watching. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit of that. And I think it's actually really risky to do on Netflix where people specifically often stop watching 30 Minutes In. Yeah. And the marketing of the special made it seem like it's just this one thing. And I remember thinking of this, like, his male feminist joke, where in the, in the trailer, it's like, male feminist. And you're like, ah, you know what his take is. And then his take is, like, actually, like, a very sensitive take <laughs> about, like, what it means to be a feminist.
2: No, it's fucking nuts. People are so scared now. You now have, you have the male feminist. Like, where the fuck did that come from? Just out of nowhere. Last couple of years. I'm a male feminist. I've always championed women. No, you haven't. You haven't. This shit came out, and you're fucking scared. You did something. You grabbed some fucking titties. What the fuck did you do that you have to overcorrect that fucking hard? What kind of a man who still has his balls is walking around saying that he's a male feminist? I'm a male feminist. I totally see the way you see the fucking world. It's it's impossible as a man who was raised right... (laughs) a feminist. You can't do it. You're a man. Look, you, you, you can agree with it. You can empathize, sympathy. You can do all of that shit, but you can't be it any more than I can stand here and just be like, I'm a Black Panther. <laughs> Fight the power. <laughs> and then I walk out the door a blue-eyed white dude and I get to live that fucking life, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, ladies. I don't buy it. Maybe, maybe you do. I
7: don't.
1: All of it is... What a lot of people th- want to do in the style of comedy that he actually is able to do because he is so deliberate, especially this time, about all parts of it and thinking about a whole show, which I think a lot of people can't do. Like it's actually like a very hard thing to do for comedians because the first time you get to do that, you're sort of have not been doing it for 10 years and then you're just sort of a collection of jokes. So doing an hour of like what is this thing about is sort of like not – Part of the skill set, and this is really a great example of it. Without being like, you know, there's there's a, there's one-man show type things on this list, and this is not a one-person show. But I do like when you feel like a, that this is a special, and the reason these things are together on purpose. He had other material that did not fit into this arc, yep. and I thought it 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 did a very good job of that thing of being like, oh, you believe him, and then the sensitive moments do not feel like. It really is like an anti-hero experience, yeah. Which is like, though you see all over the place in TV, it's hard to pull off in the same way, in in a, in the same complex way that you do in stand-up. Um, and I think Bill is probably better at it than everyone else who wishes they can do it, who just comes off as assholes.
3: Yes, because the antihero generally requires having another person in the room yeah. to point to that person yeah, so that you have a way of measuring mm-hmm. that we all understand that we're supposed to be on the other person's yeah. side and not the center. But if you're the only person on the stage, it's very hard to do. Yeah.
1: Coming at number six, Roy Wood Jr.'s No One Loves You, which mm-hmm. um, I, I – I, I will say I probably would have put higher, but it's okay. I get it. Uh, what did you like about it?
3: Um, the way that he, the way that he locates McDonald's as a source of pleasure that is like so direct of like it's just legit. It's you want to put the food in your yeah, mouth. Yeah. And, but then also makes it, he finds an entire cultural experience mm. of it, which is amazing when you are able to use one object and then spin off an entire, a way of understanding culture. And then at the end, it becomes this plot point in yeah. a story that he is extremely thrilled to be telling, that he then twists again through several little political things and then winds up with this perfect little button. I was just, I was so, so taken with, yeah, that. Yeah,
1: when it ended, I don't want to spoil the end or whatever. I mean, it, it, McDonald's plays a big part in the ending. And it, when it finally ended, he says the final joke. I, I literally like, was like, that's how you fucking do it, is what <laughs> I thought. Like, that is Craft. I think you you watch this and go, this is how joke writing should work. This yeah. is how comedy should work. Yeah. This is the standard that I think everyone – I judge everyone against of, like, how you do the job of being a stand-up comedian. And you write – you find things that are actually unsaid and you actually bring yourself to it and you mix it all together and you think of deliberately about how a thing is being built. And, I mean, Roy is incredible. He's an, he's the most deliberate comedian I probably ever or at least recently and um he, I remember he always be like I there's certain material I couldn't talk about until I was famous enough or had enough authority to be able to talk about it, it was to, I was old enough and this is a special where it's clear that he is settling into his role of the type of comedian that Wanda is that Chris Rock is yeah. which is I I'm authority and I'm going to give you a different angle on it and it's not going to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian and it's not going to be what you've already heard because he well, knows what everyone is already talking about and he has he's doing a thing that he had not done before which is the Chappelle thing which the way he uses not jokes to set up jokes yes. but also to not set up jokes he just really uses pauses in a way and talks about like the trans joke is just mostly serious and builds to a thing but I I mean I literally I'm getting emotional because it is so
8: directly pointed at his colleagues. We reject new information. That's why we are at this crossroads with LGBTQIA issues and trans issues, like, because people don't want to accept somebody else's truth. Just kick back and just listen to what other people are going through. Learn something. Because, like, it's, it's hilarious to me that people don't even care about just basic. Simple it like something as simple. It's just calling somebody a different name. You can't do that You can't do that. You just can't call someone a different name. Somebody named Jack want to be called Jill. You can't do that You can't even do that. Is, that is that asking too much? Hey man, this person used to be called Jack and want to be called Jill. Can you call him Jill? Well, I can't call him Jill. Can't be calling nobody no different name cause they feel like a lady. I have a sheet of paper here on the wall that says I learned all the genders. One, two, that's it. Somebody named Jack wanna be called Jill. You can't do that. Meanwhile, half your favorite entertainers been performing under a fake name. You ain't had no problems with that. I ain't finna call you Jill. Meanwhile, you think you think you think Ice Cube is his real name? <laughs> really? Or maybe he just gave you a name he wanted to be called? Maybe. Just maybe.
1: So clear-headed. You feel comfortable that you're like, I don't care when the laughs of this come in and how big they are. Yeah. Because he's he knows the types of – he. if you want to, you can crush for an hour and you can laugh and he'd be the funniest special you see all year. But this is like exactly the message he wanted to say. He wanted to create a tone. He wanted the audience to feel cared for. When you put work into something, an audience feels cared for and mm-hmm. that is what the special is about. And – The the thing that I always – it bums me out is that it was filmed like a Comedy Central special, so it looks eh. Yeah. Where if it was filmed like some of these other specials, it would have felt a little bit more intimate and would have been even more impactful.
3: I do think there is a way that because there are now so many specials out there and there are so many different outlets doing them, we – all of us are visual creatures. We are yeah. all we are watching all of these things, and so for better and for worse, there are visual ways of saying this is important. Yeah, and s- sadly, this was not filmed in the way that is meant to communicate to a broad audience. Like this is a serious, important, yes. impressive thing that is yeah. happening.
1: Netflix is. I, I remember I've, I've written it, which is like Netflix's main. Th- if there's any thematic sameness about Netflix specials, that they look like they cost money. Yeah. And that they're worth paying money for. And they're prestige signifiers that are so um, class-based and so uh, detrimental to sort of art generally, but it does create a certain vocabulary of what we think things should look like. And ultimately, there are things that, like, more... Budget on production can bring. I yeah. mean, like, as we'll talk about later, like, yeah. Yeah. it can be a real game changer. And the quality of the material, I think, is like up there with anything that's come out this year. And as as I said, he is the standard which I judge comedians against. And I know other comedians do as well. I just want him to have special little time and everyone to know about it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you put him at number six. So. <laughs> that's it for another episode of Good One. Look out for part two of our conversation on Wednesday. You can stream Nate, Whitney, Wanda, and Bill's special on Netflix, Julio's on HBO Now and Go, Emily Heller on Comedy Central's YouTube channel, and Roy's on the Comedy Central app or wherever you purchase video. Good One is produced by Mike Comte with production assistance from Ed Cuervo, Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write, review, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them, what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, so you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Have a good one.
4: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it.